It's good to see so many friends of Milton and so many friends of the Bodleian together to celebrate this launch. I think Milton is a poet who had a great civic presence, and that sort of poet is very much alive and needed today uh, through the works of those who write in his memory, through those who are inspired by him, through those who read, read him. And his vision of civic-minded activity, whether poetical or political, or merely sitting in a library, um, I think we do need today, and that was part of my inspiration in uh, putting on the exhibition, to highlight those aspects of Milton, which are not merely cloistered in a library, but really active in the civic role uh, to help his nation reform itself and to maintain its commitments to civic virtue and liberty. So you'll see that's a theme in the exhibition. It's also been a theme in the preparation of the exhibition. Many people to thank for that. Richard Ovenden for tolerating my uh, ideas about the exhibition, and many of the staff at the Bodleian who have been who become good a uh, good pleasure to know. Dana Josephson in particular, Sarah Wheel, Clive Hurst, certainly Chris Fletcher, um, Johanna Stevenson who helped put together the booklet, and uh, a number of others who helped to make the exhibition possible. I want to thank you all very much, and I hope you all enjoy the exhibition and. Um, remember Milton and remember that civic virtue is always something we need to keep a watch out to protect. Four hundred years after the birth of John Milton, he still lives. His example still inspires. His words still echo. Last year, I think it was last year or the year before, I saw a performance of a play based on Paradise Lost in the Oxford Playhouse. The year before, a, a version of the poem adapted for children by Nancy Willard was published in the United States. Last month, I spent an evening in Toronto uh, talking to an Indian classical dancer, Janak Kendri, and his teacher, Professor Tulsi Ram Sharma, about the dance that Mr. Kendri was preparing based on, yes, Paradise Lost. It will not die. It will not go away. Paradise Lost is the great central work, of course, but Milton's life was far more than Paradise Lost, and this exhibition celebrates the rest of it as well. His political work, his writing of majestic pamphlets that still endure, the championing of liberty and the freedom of the press. Milton is our greatest public poet, the poet most profoundly engaged in all the work of the state, the most eloquent supporter of the English Republic. This exhibition is rightly called Citizen Milton because it emphasizes something about the nature of the writer's responsibility. Milton never forgot that writers and poets are citizens too. As we look around this exhibition, which I was privileged to do an hour or two ago, we can see the extraordinary range of his concerns. Uh, church organization, divorce, monarchy, censorship, and always and throughout the nature of the responsibilities of freedom. And he was all of a piece. He believed firmly that all men naturally were born free. And he argued in the tenure of kings and magistrates that citizens should be governed by reason and not generally give up their understanding to a double tyranny of custom from without and blind affections within. The step from that firm and resolute republicanism to a delightful fairy tale of two happy people in a pretty garden with a tree and a snake uh, might seem to be a long one. But, of course, the central story of Paradise Lost is precisely that of a rebellion against authority and its consequences. And it's natural, given the tendency of Milton's imaginative sympathies, 
that we should find a lot of truth in the famous declaration of William Blake, which also finds a place in the exhibition, that Milton was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. In other words, in Blake's terms, the party of the imagination, of inspiration, of that energy which is eternal delight. It seemed to more readers than Blake that the authority against which the attractive figure of Satan rebels deserves to be rebelled against. And here I can't help remembering a story which I heard once and I quoted before in a piece I wrote about Milton. But I can't find the source of it, so if anybody can tell me what it is, I'd be very grateful. It's um, an old squire of the hard-drinking, probably in the late 18th century, being read to by his more highly educated butler from Paradise Lost. And I picture the old boy sitting there with his gouty foot propped up on a stool and his fist clenched around a glass of port. And suddenly he bangs the arm of his chair and he says, By God, he says, by God, I know not what the outcome may be, but this Lucifer is a damned fine fellow and I hope he may win. <laughs> but, uh, but why the Bodleian? What's the connection, apart from the, well, the slight and trivial fact that this is one of the world's great libraries and naturally holds many items of Miltonic interest? Well, we've heard from Dr. Thomas already but the Bodleian Library has its heroic and, dare I say it, republican virtues too. Um, after the Restoration, as we've heard, uh, Milton's books were in danger. Books were condemned to be burned. Doubtless, all over the country, many copies were burned and went to the flames. Doubtless many, doubtless many libraries and booksellers in other parts of what was now a kingdom again gave up their copies of his works to the local executioner or the, local, or the contemporary equivalent of Alistair Campbell, perhaps, to be disposed of. But Bodley's librarian, John Rouse, had foreseen such an order and taken steps to make sure that Milton's poems and pamphlets would survive. And in a curious reversal of the normal cataloguing procedure, which aims to make books generally easy to find, uh, he succeeded in hiding the items until the danger passed. I must say, there are some library catalogues I've used, not this one, which have taken... Rouse's action and made it into a principle. <laughs> and again, in 1683, the order went out from the convocation of the University of Oxford itself this time. Not the university's finest hour, perhaps, but it was one of the, one of the Bodleian's finest hours because, again, Milton survived. It's not hard to see why the poetry still lives. It's the language. As W.H. Auden said in his poem on the death of Yeats, Time, which is intolerant of the brave and innocent, and indifferent in a week to a beautiful physique, worships language and forgives everyone by whom it lives. And Milton's command of the music of language, its sensuous qualities, its sound and rhythm and weight and texture, is hardly matched by any other English poet. We need to remember how to read poetry. Those of us, especially those of us who are concerned with education, we need to let it live in the mouth. We need to trust the ear. We need to give it permission to enchant as well as argue. But it's also Milton's example as a champion of intellectual freedom that we need more than ever these days. When a government is so mesmerized by the power of technology to collect endless quantities of information about us without having the slightest interest in judging its truthfulness, when it's so intoxicated by the sexiness of thinking that its opponents embody absolute evil, when it's so timorous that it makes victims of an 80-year-old man heckling at a party conference and, and a woman reading out at the cenotaph a list of 
soldiers and civilians killed in the Iraq war. And when it's so careless of the liberty of the citizen that it's now trying to hold people in custody for six weeks without even charging them, then we need to remember what liberty can mean and what a champion liberty had in John Milton. Milton now should be living at this hour, said Wordsworth. Well, Milton is living at this hour, living in the words he wrote, living in the minds of all those who were inspired by him, and living not least in this marvelous exhibition. Good for Milton. Good for the Bodleian Library. And I hope many, many people will come and see what this great Englishman did and why we should celebrate him still. It gives me enormous pleasure, and it's a great privilege to be able to declare the exhibition open. Thank you very much. I'd like very much to uh, thank all of you for coming tonight. It's, it's, it's always a delight to hear the kind of hum of excitement as people are anticipating uh, a great exhibit and being here together among other people who share a common love of libraries and reading and learning. Uh, this e exhibition is celebrating the 400th anniversary of the birth of John Milton. And although a number of other institutions are also celebrating this event, uh, and despite Milton's having spent his student days at what I now know is called the other place, uh, I feel the Bodleian has a number of claims which establish it as a highly appropriate venue. Uh, John Milton was a friend of Bodley's librarian, John Rouse, to whom he presented several works. In fact, his ode to John Rouse in, in that, Milton thanked him and the Bodleian for their role in undertaking to preserve his books for posterity. And this was a role that was really very severely tested during the Restoration when Charles II condemned Republican works by Milton and called for them to be burned. Later, the convocation of the University of Oxford, itself nervous of the authorities, commanded that Milton's books, amongst others, be gathered up and be burnt in the old school's quadrangle. If it weren't for the defiant librarians of the time squirreling the texts away, these destructive imperatives would have been fulfilled. Instead, you'll be able to see them on display next door in the exhibition. This duty, quite literally under fire, illustrates how closely allied the Bodleian and Milton were in their defense of liberty and the freedom of expression. Indeed, by this point, the Bodleian had been refounded by Sir Thomas Bodley for the whole republic of the learned. This vision is kept today. We're still committed to the preservation of the world's written heritage and to the sharing of our books freely with the public as widely as possible in the virtual and the very real world. It is this democratic spirit that we, in, in this democratic spirit, we invite you this evening to have a look around our exhibition. You'll find much to do with Milton and even a little to do with our very distinguished speaker this evening, Philip Pullman. But first, I want to thank many people who have made this exhibition possible. The curator of the exhibition, Sharon Atchenstein, is a fellow and a tutor in English at St. Edmund Hall and a Milton expert, and she's worked closely with many colleagues across the library. 
I want to thank Philip Pullman for agreeing to open this event as our guest of honor. And we're particularly grateful to the actor Sam Daster for reading tonight and agreeing to record some works earlier today to be bodcast, as we like to say. Then I also want to thank all the many colleagues across the library involved in putting this exhibition together, in particular Dana Josephson, Maddie Slavin, Sarah Wheel, and Dot Little. And of course, I want to thank Chris Fletcher, our keeper of Western manuscripts, who's been very, very involved in this as well, and uh, Richard Ovenden for his overall shepherding of, of the exhibition. I'd also like to thank John Coe and his co colleagues, Anthony Payne and Ted Hoffman at Bernard Quaritch Limited for their generous support of the production of the exhibition booklet, both financially and in terms of their expert advice. And we'd like to thank the Ashmolean Museum and Keeble College for their generous loans. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>